0: Okay, back in the book of Leviticus this evening, if you'll join me in the 21st chapter, we went about halfway through chapter 21 together last time, and again, the book of Leviticus, remember, is really a manual on worship that God gave to the children of Israel. They're, again, just as a reminder, as sort of a backdrop, as we're kind of in this uh, latter portion of the book now. They're, they're waiting. They're in sort of a holding pattern there uh, before they begin their, what we know as wilderness wandering, the journey that they would then take through the wilderness. And God has been giving to them instructions regarding worship. He began to talk to them about what practical holiness would look like as well after he passed through the different all And sacrifices. And now, as we come to chapter 21 and 22, specifically what we're getting here are some regulations or restrictions for the priests. Again, remember the priests had a twofold function. Uh, Their job was twofold. Number one, to represent God to the people and to be a reflection of God to the people and to represent Him before the congregation. But their secondary role as mediators was also to then represent the people before God in intercession and their ministry activities and responsibilities and of course the priest in a sense become a type and a picture from a New Testament perspective of the Christian because the Bible tells us in 1 Peter and other places that we are a it says a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and in a spiritual sense uh, you could say we each as Christians have a priestly ministry we are as Christians Jesus told us to be salt and light uh, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and certainly he is. But he also said to us in his own words, you are the light of the world and and you are the salt of the earth. So we are to represent Jesus and represent God and the Lord as children of God to the world. So we represent God to the world by our actions, reflecting who God is. We should represent him well. And we also, in a twofold ministry, in a sense, stand Uh, in the gap for people before the Lord and intercede for them in prayer and for their salvation and seek to share the word of God with them to help facilitate them coming into a relationship with the Lord. So certainly as we look at some of these things, we can take lessons and principles uh, to ourselves as well. Now, again, chapter 21, as we said, deals with some regulations and restrictions for the priests uh, of the tribe of Levi, uh, showing how they were to conduct themselves among the people, and specifically, two primary regulations or restrictions we see in this chapter here. We looked at uh, the first half of it last week. Uh, first of all, how they were to handle death. And second of all, uh, how they were to select a wife, the priests were. Uh, And we saw that they were to handle death differently than others in the congregation did because of their responsibility and the calling upon their life as spiritual leaders. Um, They were to handle the death process differently. They were to grieve, but they were to grieve in a different way. And of course, we said how this was reflective of how as Christians, when we experience death, it's no less painful we grieve, it breaks our hearts. It's proper to grieve. You know, I don't buy into the hyper-spiritual mentality that Christians shouldn't grieve and shouldn't mourn and go through that process. Look, God created tear ducts. The grief process is real. Jesus wept at the funeral of Lazarus, and again, and he was going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. Uh, And he grieved at the funeral of Lazarus as that Jesus wept. And certainly Jesus wasn't grieving for his loss because he was about to receive receive his life back. There was a resurrection that was going to happen. But what Jesus was, I believe, grieving about in John chapter 11 at the funeral of Lazarus is the pain. And, and, and the tremendous suffering that he saw happening in the lives of the loved ones of Lazarus around that funeral procession because he realized how painful the death process is. And again, keep in mind as God in the flesh that that was never intended to be part of God's plan. That sin brought death, but it was never God's original intention that we would experience the torment and the suffering and the loss and the pain and the confusion and all the feelings of processing death. And, the, and again, I don't think we ever, uh, in a sense, uh, heal from it. We just adjust to the death process when we lose someone. But the Bible tells us in First Thessalonians that we grieve, but it says as Christians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. In other words, as Christians, as priests in a sense like these priests in the Old Testament, we grieve differently. We grieve, yes, but we don't grieve with a sense of hopelessness, with the utter despair and sense of just being despondent and never being able to overcome and regain our bearings. No, we go through a process, but because we understand eternal realities and the hope that there is in Christ and uh, the things of eternity and we look to the Lord in strength, we grieve, but it's not with a hopelessness. There's a hope to our grief. There's a strength to our grief that helps us to process it differently, which represents something to the world, especially in those critical times when the death process happens. Secondly, we saw then in verses 7 and 8 that the other restriction or regulation was that the priest was to select a wife differently. They could not just take anyone as a wife because of their calling, because of their responsibilities and their ministry. Uh, They were to be a little more strict and selective as they took a wife to themselves. They could not marry someone, it said, uh, who was uh, a harlot or defiled. They weren't to marry someone who was sexually promiscuous. They were not to marry someone who had been divorced. They weren't to take someone who had already had a failed marriage. Uh, they were to either marry a widow... Uh, someone who had had a marriage but lost a spouse or a virgin, someone who had never been married. And again, all of these things were critical because their choice of a wife would reflect upon their reputation and would also either complement and help support and facilitate God's ministry and calling for their life as a completer, or it could be a tremendous interference, and it could completely cause a hindrance And a process in their life whereby that wife, if they took a wife to themselves that was not the right wife, uh, it could completely impair God's plan for their life. And in a sense, impede all of what God had intended for their life. And it could hinder their ministry. And again, as I said last time, certainly if you have a heart to want to serve the Lord and be an effective, fruitful Christian. And the Bible says there's a call of God on every one of our lives as Christians. I think it's important if you're still in the process where you have time uh, to consider and choose as a young person, as a single person still, I think it's wise to be selective. I think it's wise to be strict in regards to who you'll marry and not marry, even beyond just saying, well, are they saved? You know, do they have a heartbeat, and do they know Jesus? Good enough, okay. That's, and, and some Christians get that desperate. That that's almost their mentality. Well, okay, they're, they're not dog-ugly. They do have a heartbeat, and they, they are saved at least. So, okay, I'll, I'm going to take my opportunity while it's available. And I think you should be a little more prayerful and selective because, listen, that person will either help and complement your life in ministry where it's very possible that person can become your ministry. And for the rest of your life, you will be impeded from everything maybe God wanted you to experience and do because you will, if you marry the wrong person, potentially become burdened down. And understand when I say they become your ministry in a way whereby that marriage can actually impede. Uh, the ultimate purposes and plans. So again, I think there's just great wisdom shown here in this process. Find someone compatible, someone who is the right individual to marry you know, and, and, and it will have a tremendous enhancement and benefit upon your life, especially if you want to serve the Lord to the fullest extent of his call for your life. Well, verse 9, he then gave one more comment regarding the priests. He, he said, they're the daughter of any priest. If she profanes herself by playing a harlot, so the idea here is one of the daughters of someone who is in the priestly ministry, she becomes promiscuous, she enters into harlotry. Uh, and she profanes notice her father the idea is is that she causes uh, in a sense a, a stain upon the father's reputation in a way whereby it would uh, kind of tarnish the family's reputation because of what was going on it could cause great shame as people looked upon that father and It says notice she shall be burned with fire now that that's a little drastic there that's pretty intense uh, again, we've looked at some of the punishments in the prior chapter and some of the things that were capital offenses. Notice, this was a capital offense. It says here, again, remember we saw that if someone you know dishonored their parents and was a rebellious child, we saw back in chapter 20, anyone who curses his father and mother shall surely be put to death. God took that very seriously. And here God gives a rather serious admonition so that it does not impair the ministry of the Father. God says if she becomes immoral in that way and begins to participate in those things, uh, God says that she was obviously to be stoned first. Again, we know that was the way they executed capital punishment. But after she was stoned, many times after capital punishment, they would then burn the body as well. And I think there's another implication here in this, and that is very simply this. Is, I think what God is emphasizing here is even if it's the priest's daughter, they were still to implement proper, in a sense, discipline and judgment towards sin. There were no special exceptions, if you understand what I mean. Because it could be very easy as a priest to say, well, but she's the priest's daughter. I mean, certainly she entitled a little extra exception, isn't she? And uh, again, in the same way, I think it is wrong... To put undue you know, and, and unrealistic expectations upon children who you know, are, are children of parents in ministry, and, and, and I have always tried to guard my children from that, and never give them the indication, "Well, you need to behave because you're a pastor's kid." You know, you need to, you know, set an example. No, no, that's that's nonsense. That's nonsense. My kids are normal, like everybody else. And they're going to be sinners and they're going to struggle. And I understand we're called as a family. But to put undue pressure upon a kid to make them think they have to perform and legislate spirituality because they have to somehow you know, contribute to our family's reputation, that, that's, that's just nonsense. And all that does is drive children away from the church. And my perspective is this. I don't ever want anybody telling one of my kids, oh, you should be doing this because you're a pastor's kid. My mentality is, no, you should be setting an example for my kids Like, we all should be setting an example for all the kids in the church. We should be setting examples for them. But here, I think the implication is, sin was never given a special exception. If even, notice, if even the priest's daughter became immoral in this way, emotions were to be set aside, and honoring God was always the supremacy. That we would always honor God, and in ministry, we have to always honor the Lord. You know, there are occasions where even Paul gets to in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he talks about dealing with an elder, if an elder or spiritual leader falls into sin, and how to deal with that. And he says these things are to be observed without partiality. Because, see, sometimes in relationships, when there are emotions and relationships and bonds that get formed, In the same way, let's say with an elder or an assistant pastor or a senior pastor and then sin or inappropriate behavior or some disqualifying purpose for ministry begins to happen. The mistake that often transpires, and I have seen this play itself out, is people esteem emotions and relationships and commitments, which are not wrong things, over honoring God. And overdoing what is right in the sight of the Lord. And people make exceptions and and, and and give little you know opportunities to you know brush things aside and not deal with them. And listen, in ministry, whenever we are serving the Lord, again, the Bible tells us that the congregation of God's people are sheep and he's the great shepherd and and those of us who serve the lord and this day it was you know priests who would shepherd the people a shepherd's primary concern must be what is best for the welfare of the sheep not what not, not what is best to to keep everybody having no, what is best for the welfare of the sheep and and here it would be tremendously difficult and painful but i think god is just giving this very wise reminder that Esteeming anyone over the honor of the Lord is never something that's consistent with the heart of God. Now, as we come to verse 10, we notice now there are similar restrictions and regulations put on, notice the high priest, there was the priest's, Uh, that would function from the line uh, of of Aaron in his family. But Aaron, remember, was the high priest. There was always one high priest. The first one was Aaron, we know, of course. Uh, And the high priest had additional responsibilities because of a somewhat higher position in leadership. And we're going to see the standards for the high priest as the supreme spiritual leader among the people of God's congregation were even more strict, the regulations were somewhat more uh, intense in the same way from a New Testament perspective. It seems that there are greater uh, restrictions and, and greater responsibilities and a stricter requirement put upon those who are called to be elders, the spiritual leaders, tending the spiritual things. As compared, it seems there are a few more allowances when you read First Timothy 3 and Titus In regards to those who would serve in roles of deacons. And again, with greater responsibility and and, and a higher uh, call spiritually in the sense of one's authority in spiritual matters, there are greater standards. There needs to be a willingness to sacrifice more and pay a greater cost and live even more strictly as the result of the importance of that level of responsibility and what it carries with it. Again, to whom much is given, the Bible says, much will be required. The more will be required. And notice, the same standards, but look how they're intensified here. Chapter uh, 21, verse 10 says, He who is the high priest... Among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who's consecrated to wear the garments, he shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. The idea here is in the midst of grief now again, a response to death. Notice, he could not tear his clothes. That was common Jewish practice, and not just Jewish, but even in that culture, they're very expressive people, and they would rend their garments as a way of demonstrating their grief and do these kind of things in a very expressive way to demonstrate their grief. But notice that when an emotional, painful, difficult thing happened, the, the high priest was responsible, in a way even that the regular priests were not, to maintain composure. In the midst of a catastrophe, in the midst of a hardship, in the midst of a hard moment, God said, because of your role, you are responsible to maintain greater composure. You can't rip your garments like everyone else. You need to stay under control of the Spirit and maintain composure. And again, why? Because Jesus never freaks out. Again, the high priest is a picture of Jesus, ultimately. Jesus never loses control, no matter what happens. Jesus is in control, he's composed, and here uh, the, the high priest was not given the freedom to do things in some ways that others were. Notice it goes on, some of the restrictions. Verse 11, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or mother, nor how shall he go out of the sanctuary, verse 12, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him... I am the Lord. So, again, with the priests, remember, they could not have contact with a dead body when somebody died. They couldn't carry the corpse. They couldn't be near a dead corpse because that would render them ceremonially unclean for a time. But God did give the exception. Remember chapter 21, verse 2 and 3. He said, however, if it's an immediate relative, a father, a mother, then God granted an exception to the priest in that situation. They couldn't grieve like others, but when it was a close relative, they could be involved, they could embrace the loved one who had died or be involved in that sense. God granted them that exception. Notice, no such exception is given to the high priest. Do you see that here in our verses? The high priest, it says, because of his greater role of responsibility, it was a more stringent regulation He shall not go near any dead body, nor defile himself, make himself ceremonially unclean, where he could not then do his ministry responsibilities or be in the tabernacle or temple. Notice, not even for his father or mother. There was a greater cost, a greater sacrifice, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary. The idea is that he couldn't leave the sanctuary to go attend the funeral if his responsibility was in the sanctuary that the things of god had to take precedence and have a higher responsibility in his life his obedience to that important calling superseded his own affections it had to supersede even emotions and and everyday common experiences again doesn't mean that he couldn't grieve it just says he couldn't have contact with the bodies. and he Again, please understand, God's not discompassionate in this. It doesn't mean that he couldn't mourn and go through the grief process. God's not asking something unrealistic. But his responsibility caused a stricter, uh, in a sense, lifestyle in the way that he lived, whereby he was not allowed to do that. And think from a practical implication, the reason behind this. There was how many high priests in operation at the time? one there were multiple priests right but only one high priest so if the high priest had contact at any point in time in his life even for his mother and father or someone that's an immediate close relative and he becomes defiled he's ceremonially unclean what happens he can't perform his ministry so now the high priest is benched there's nobody operating in the ministry of the high priest the high priest had to always be on duty because there was only one high priest right there were multiple priests But there was only one high priest, so he always had to be on duty all the time. And of course, this is a picture of Jesus because of two reasons. First of all, Jesus was never contaminated with death. Jesus' life, the Bible says he abolished death. Jesus was never defiled by the death process. He overcame the death process just like this. And in the same way, Jesus is always on duty. Again, the high priest is a picture of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is... Is never off-duty. Nothing ever knocks Jesus out of operation. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So just like that high priest, they always had to be on duty. Jesus, he's always available. He's always on duty. He's always interceding for us with the Father. He's always available to minister and to help us in any way. And it pictures the very life of Christ, our great high priest, this very restriction on the high priest. Verse 13, we notice again the regulation on who he could marry, and he shall take a wife in her virginity. Notice again, more strict, he could not marry a widow, which was an opportunity for a regular priest, or a divorced woman, or a defiled woman, or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a wife, or excuse me, a virgin of his own people as a wife. So he had to marry within the tribe of Levi And she had to be a virgin, that was the only type of gal that he was permitted to marry, nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. So again, the high priest had to marry a wife in a very exclusive way. He could marry a virgin woman, and that was it, from the tribe of Levi. And again, more strict than even the priest. Again, the greater responsibility, the, you know, the, the, the responsibility of the call of God caused him to have to be more strict and selective in who he was to marry. He could not marry just anyone, but he had to limit who he could choose to wed himself to as a life partner. And again, keep in mind, think of his calling it was necessary that there be a properly you know uh, arranged wife that i think again a virgin woman a wife that only knew dedication to him alone a wife that only knew that hey this is the only man that i ever will and ever want to and ever know being dedicated to in such a way that she would what become very supportive she'd be very loyal there's something very beautiful about you know when a virgin gal gives herself to one man and she's only ever known one man, and there's a tremendous bonding. there's a tremendous dedication. and understand this was critical because he had a very critical, important calling in ministry, so God knows the value of how important the wife and her supportive role is to stand beside someone. Again, I've said so many times before, you know, as I envision my ministry responsibility and, and the wife that God gave to me that I know was hand-selected for me and that was important that God arranged for me, I look at Trish and I's you know, ministry calling, it's like I'm the tree and she's the root system underneath the ground. In other words, you don't see the root system. But if you don't got a strong root system, when the wind blows or things come, trust me when I tell you, I don't care how good looking and strong that tree looks above the surface, that thing's going to fall over. It's not going to stand. And see, in a sense, I picture our marriage and our ministry in that way. Yes, my responsibility is I'm the one that's above the surface. I'm the one that's bearing the brunt of things. I'm the one that's visual. I'm the tree stump dumbbell that stands up here behind a wooden piece of pulpit on Sunday morning that people see. But there's a whole other part of the ministry, there's, there's a root system, the things that happen that are unseen, which are the, 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 the prayer and the intercession that sustain me and sustain the marriage and sustain the ministry and that provides support and encouragement and, and convinces me after every Sunday morning to not commit suicide and try one more week and all those important things that are valuable and critical and this is why it's so important to be able to have, again, that right relationship. And again, he had to marry a virgin woman from the tribe of Levi, keep in mind practically as well, that high priest, so that it could be 100% accurately proven that his son was genetically of the proper line, the proper family lineage. See, if he married a woman who had had any other encounters with any other man, divorced, widowed, defiled, a a prostitute, prior sexual relations, there could always be that questionable component. How do we really know that your son is 100% your son and of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron? And again, because this was critical to the next high priest, so marrying that virgin woman would ensure that this was his child, and there was no way to uh, jeopardize that or make it questionable. And again, the high priest, he takes a virgin bride. Do you see a picture in that with Jesus? Our great high priest, our great high priest Jesus? He's taken to himself a virgin bride. The Bible says that you and I are the bride of Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, I've espoused you to like a chaste virgin to Christ. We are that virgin bride that Jesus, our great high priest, takes to himself. And so this becomes, again, a portrayal and a picture of that very thing. Verse 16 says, And the Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron saying to him, no man of your descendants, so here's another restriction or regulation for the priests in general now, no man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. The idea is offerings unto the Lord. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame or who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab that is some type of a skin infection or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. And the idea is to be able to present offerings at the altar. Doesn't mean that they couldn't do other things in their priestly function. Doesn't say they couldn't teach. The idea here is that they could not offer the offerings. They were restricted from doing that if they had some type of a physical defect or deformity. He has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. Notice, again, it's not that they were inferior. It's not that God was being discompassionate. Verse 22, notice, he could still eat the bread of his God, so he could still receive uh, the compensation that uh, you know, sustained the priests that they took of the food that was set aside for them. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron, and to his sons and to all the children of Israel. So again, we saw in the same way that the sacrifices, remember, could not have defects or blemishes. We also see here that those who offered them had to be perfectly fit and could not have blemishes or defects. It was one of God's established requirements. They had to be vessels of complete honor without defects or blemishes. So they had any type of a physical deformity uh, that disqualified them for that particular role to serve in that way. And again, keep in mind, these things are portrayals and pictures of Christ. In the same way, the Bible tells us as our priest that Jesus has no defects. Jesus is sinless. He's pure. There's no limitations in Jesus. Again, they could not be blind. Well, the Bible says, again, everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of the Lord to whom we must give account. Again, there's nothing Jesus is blind to as the great high priest. Jesus sees everything. Uh, there was no problem with weakness or you know, limitations because of physical defects. Look, Jesus has no limitations. His arm's not short. His hand's not too weak. It's, there's no limitations or defects in Jesus' ministry. His ministry's perfect. And that's a good thing that there's a complete, perfect ministry that Jesus offers to us. And so, again, these things are pictures and portrayals of Christ as well as they were just regulations among the priesthood. Now, I think some important lessons that we see here regarding ministering to the Lord here in this chapter as well as regarding spiritual leaders. And, And the first thing, I hope you take notice, as kind of a summary of chapter 21 is this is you notice that God gives specific criteria that relate very clearly for the priests, those who were ministers or spiritual leaders, very specific criteria for what? Their marriage and their family life. He talks about who they would marry, and he talks about their daughters, and I think it's just a reminder that we need to recognize that our marriages and our home life, hear me, is a very important basis for effectiveness in ministry. Now again, please understand, by no means is the Bible saying that that there needs to be perfection in regards to serving the Lord. Because the truth of the matter is, who can deliver on that? Nobody's perfect. God understands that. But nonetheless, there should be a healthy, solid home life. The state of a person's marriage has a very strong impact upon their effectiveness and their usefulness for the Lord. If things are amiss maritally, it can unfortunately kind of cripple and hold back the fullness of maybe what God might want to do or could do and sometimes if things aren't right in a marriage and they're being neglected and not addressed then a person is more interested in trying to you know do other things than than give sincere attention to their marriage and this can happen many a times where pastors and ministers and spiritual leaders you know they're they're all excited about winning the world and you know doing everything the responsibilities of the church and yet their home life is a mess And their own marriage relationship is an absolute mess, and they're disregarding their marriage, and things are rocky at home. And and God's saying, "Listen, that is a pathway to major problems, and 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 ultimately to a shipwreck and to a failure." And we see here that a strong, healthy marriage and a strong, healthy home life, right relationships with children, being responsible—if the children are rebellious, dealing with those were a strong basis to a healthy ministry and a very important thing for effectiveness in ministry. And they should always be the same in our lives as well. Again, if I can just quickly read to you from First Timothy 3, it's the same implication in the New Testament when God gives the, the criteria, the characteristics to look for, for spiritual leaders and elders, as well as what I think are things that are to continue as qualifying marks for someone to continue in ministry, even after in ministry. It says, this is part of it. It says, for if a man, excuse me, it has to be someone, listen, who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, again, the Bible is saying for the elder, for the pastor, for the minister, for the spiritual leader, God says, listen, the proving ground It starts at home. And God says, if a man does not know how to rule and to lead his own house spiritually, to be a leader in his home, to minister in his home, to maintain a healthy and proper marriage relationship, relating to his wife properly, ministering to his wife properly, whatever the dynamic may be. If a man doesn't understand the reality of shepherding and pastoring his own children and can't manage his home life, then God says, then they certainly are not ready to manage and have responsibility in the affairs of the church. Again, when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and places like that in the New Testament, please notice the emphasis all on character. It's all on character. One of the greatest misfortunes, I think, in seminaries and even in church life today is, is we're setting aside character because we're more concerned about charisma and talent and skill, and education, and experience. And that's what we use to quantify who should be our spiritual leaders. God says, well, that's completely backwards. God says, you give me character. You give me someone, God says, who is faithful, who's blameless, who's a husband of one wife, sober-minded, good behavior. In other words, their personal godliness and 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 they're, they're a minister in their home life. they got a good, solid marriage. And they're raising, not again, perfect children, but godly children. And even if their children are disobedient, they don't tolerate it. They deal with it. They address it. Their children respect them. Their children respect them. And I think that's that a child, you know, respect their parent in that way because they see personal godliness. They see integrity in the parent. God says, if that's there, God says, I can anoint all that's needed for the experiential aspect of ministry again God can use donkeys to talk to people (laughs) so God says you can be character and godliness I can anoint what's necessary in teaching and ministering and all that but it never works the other way around you can bring God experience and talent and education and training and charisma but if the character is not in place that's really dangerous and that really can get very messy and very unhealthy. So again, we see this picture, both old and New Testament, the value of character and you know family life. These are important essentials, both old and New Testament, whether with elders and deacons, and here in the Old Testament with the spiritual leaders, the priests. And I'll tell you this, in regards to chapter 121, let me say one more thing, and that's this: You notice at the end, if you were defective, you, you could not minister. You got a physical defect. Now, certainly, that's not something we apply from a New Testament perspective because the Bible says that God uses what? The foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the base things of the world. Here's the wonderful thing. Though they had to be physically, in a sense, fit and they could not have defects or that impaired them from ministering, the wonderful thing for us is thanks to, listen, Jesus' perfection thanks to the perfection of Jesus Christ in who he is in his sinlessness and we are just in Christ clothed under his righteousness we can all be used by the Lord and we can all serve the Lord and minister guess what? Even with our defects and I know all of you and you know me and there's a lot of defects in this room There's a lot of flaws and you know and some of us are a little blind to certain things. Some of us have some limitations, some of us limp a little bit, and some of us have areas of our life, you know, where there are some defects and, and, and we all have our issues, but because of the perfection of Christ and being in Christ, though we're defective, like cracked vessels, we can still be usable. And even with our defects, we still get in New Testament ministry to serve the Lord and let his spirit flow through our lives. So let's look at chapter 22, a portion of it, as time allows. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel. Notice, that... And here's the reason, that's a reason word, that. That they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. So, uh, as we come to this section here now, verse 2 is difficult, I think, in the way it reads in the New King James. Let me read you the way one of the modern translations renders verse 2. I think it gives the sense a little more clearly in our minds. Verse 2 in a more modern translation says this. Tell Aaron and his sons to treat the sacred gifts or sacred offerings that the Israelites set apart for me with great care and respect, so that they don't profane my holy name, I am the Lord. So what God's speaking about here now to the priests, and again he's giving more instruction to the priests in their ministry, is in essence you could say a warning against becoming too casual or too familiar with the holy things of God and their ministry responsibilities, whereby they then begin to bring contempt or dishonor to the things of the Lord that they're, in a sense, having responsibility over in their ministry. The Lord says to them here, listen, tell the priests to treat those sacred offerings, those sacred gifts that the people bring in worship, God says, with great care. With respect, in other words, they they were never to become professional in their ministry duties and responsibilities. And there's a great danger, you know, the Bible, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but th- we see the principle where familiarity, we say, what breeds contempt. And sometimes in the things of the Lord, and certainly even in the service to the Lord and in ministry, there's a danger where you're constantly involved in the things of God, the things of God, where you can almost begin to get a little casual. Listen, I love a casual environment, but our hearts should never get casual. We should always remain reverent. We should always remain respectful and realize that when we touch the things of God or serve the Lord, that there should still be a reverence for the things of the Lord. We don't want to, in a sense, become haphazard and begin to become casual and familiar. He says, whereby God says, you begin to profane me. Now that word profane, We hear that, what does that word mean? Well, in essence, it means this. It means to treat something sacred with irreverence or contempt. To treat something sacred with irreverence or contempt. So God is saying, be careful. Don't begin to become too casual and too familiar where you begin to take the things of God, ministry and worship, In a way where you take what's sacred and you begin to treat it with irreverence or contempt and you begin to get a little disrespectful and you begin to get a little dishonoring to the Lord and profane Him in the process. So this is what the warning is here that they would not become just overly professional and not be respectful in the things that they were doing in their worship and their service to God. Verse 3 says, Say to them, Whoever of all your descendants throughout your territory or your generation, excuse me, who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while, notice, while he has an uncleanness upon him, some, some ceremonially un, unclean thing, he's rendered himself ceremonially unclean by violating one of the prohibitions, or maybe there's some you know, struggle of sin that he's beginning to wrestle with. Again, though he's a priest, he's still a man. He still has a sin nature like everyone else. So God says, if he goes near the holy things while he has an uncleanness upon him, God says, that person, that priest, shall be cut off from my presence. So here God gives a warning that the priest was not to minister if and when, in a sense, they were unfit for service. And if they knew they were ceremonially unclean, they were to refrain He's going to talk about some of the things that could cause that. If they knew that there was some issue that was a part of their life personally, and again, we're not talking about perfection, but some issue that was a part of their life personally that needed attention. They weren't to just keep plowing forward, being more concerned about their reputation before all the people than their character and their relationship before God. That was to be, because that's the essence of hypocrisy. When we are more concerned about our reputation before people and what they think of us and maintaining a status or a position or just more than we are our character and our relationship with God, that's the essence of hypocrisy. And God says if there's something that's amiss, God says that there's a time, God says, when that person, they're to be cut off from my presence. In other words, again, whether that's referring to death or a loss of the responsibility and the benefit of doing what they were doing, God says there is a time. To remove someone from their role, to remove that priest from his responsibilities, to to take them out of that position. God says, they shall be cut off from my presence. If they're doing that, verse 4, he gives some examples. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron, who is a leper or has a discharge, he shall not eat the holy offerings, notice, until, until it's been resolved, until he is clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who's had an emission of semen, whoever touches any creeping thing which would be made unclean, any of the unclean animals, or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who's touched any such thing shall be unclean. Notice, it wasn't forever, unclean until evening. And he shall not eat the holy offerings unless, notice, he first washes his body with water. So there was a process of cleansing. There was a time to step back and to refrain. I think it's interesting that God says, notice, the cleansing is the washing with water. And again, it reminds us how the washing of water, many times it's a representative of the word of God in Scripture. And that is the resolution when there's something that's not right in anyone's heart or life. is is to resort to the word of God, to let the word of God wash over us personally and deal with our own life. And it says, verse 7, that then when the sun goes down, and keep in mind on the Jews' calendar and their way of measuring time, that was the beginning of the day. When the sun went down, that was the beginning of their day, kind of different than the way that we view it. So the idea is when the sun goes down, he shall then be clean after a a 24-hour period and then a washing. And afterward, he shall then eat the holy offerings because it is his food. So the idea here is at the start of a new day, he could then enter back into his ministry and begin to engage if he had become ceremonially unclean by some of the things that were mentioned here in our verses. And I think this is just a beautiful reminder, too, of just the grace of God and His mercy, showing that God's not looking for perfection, as I said, because nobody can deliver that whatsoever. That when the sun goes down, He shall be clean and He can enter back into His roles and His responsibilities of service as a priest in ministry at the beginning of a new day. It reminds us of Lamentations chapter 3, where the Bible says, What? His mercies are new every morning. And I think this is just a good reminder for this. Listen, when you fail, when you blow it, when you make a mistake, and I don't care who you are or what you're doing, whether you're serving the Lord in a home Bible study, you're serving in the Sunday school or ushering, or whether you're pastoring a church, or you're a missionary, or you're Billy Graham, you're going to fail once in a while. You're going to make mistakes. And in your conscience, you're going to realize, oh man, I just... And you're going to have... Errors and times where you render yourself unclean and your conscience is... Listen, don't dwell on that. You confess it, you repent before the Lord, and His mercies are new every morning. And don't leave yourself paralyzed over yesterday's failure or last. Oh, but I still can't believe I did that last week. And oh, I I don't deserve to study for this Bible study. I still can't believe I yelled at the kids. And I mean, I raised my voice and oh, I'm so unworthy. No, No, listen, get over it. You confess it. You acknowledge it. You accept the Lord's forgiveness. His mercies are new every day. And you then engage back into the things in which God has called you to. Verse 8, it says, And who, whatever dies naturally, or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat. So again, he wasn't allowed to take a, a dead animal just found along the road, to because that would defile himself, as well as make him unhealthy. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my ordinance, lest they bear sin for for it. And notice again, die thereby, If they profane it, I, the Lord, sanctify them. So again, there were restrictions. Certain things other people could eat, they could not eat. They were to live more strictly. Certain things that other people could participate in, the minister, the priest, could not participate in. They had to choose to live more strictly at a higher standard because of their calling, because of their responsibility. And to not do so was to, in essence, sin before the Lord and potentially incur judgment. As the result, verse 10, he goes on, no outsider shall eat of the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant, that is someone he may have hired to do work, shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, in other words, he hires someone to be a household servant or slave, Purchases them, he may eat it, and one who is born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she's entered into a new family relationship, she marries maybe outside the tribe of Levi, and she's now living in a new relationship, then she no longer was able to partake of the holy offerings provided as food for the priest. But if the priest's daughter is a widow, or divorced or she has no child and she's returned to her father's house as in her youth she may eat her father's food but no outsider shall eat it so here it's giving instruction regarding the provisions, the food that was supplied uh, when the holy offerings were brought. We saw before many of, uh, of, of the offerings, a portion of it was provision for the priests. That was their compensation, it was their food, it was, but they were the only ones that were to partake of it. The benefits of the priesthood were to sustain them here, but we see in these verses that those benefits of the priesthood were reserved only for his family. For those born in his house, for someone he had purchased, but no outsider could partake of those benefits of the priesthood, they were reserved for the family. And I think this is just a again a, a picturesque reminder that the benefits that come from God are reserved for those who are in the family. Again, only those who are part of the family could take from the benefits of the priesthood. Outsiders could not partake of the benefits. They were exclusively reserved for those within the family of the priesthood. And in the same way, there are certain benefits spiritually that are reserved for the family of God, for those born into the family of God and those who are a part of the family of God. And they're not intended for outsiders. They're not. There's something reserved for the family of God and intended for the family of God alone. Which means this, that guess what? Sometimes the priest had to tell people no. Hey, can I have that? Can I eat some of that? And and, what are you, you, selfish man? Why can't I eat that? What are you, judging me? Why can't I have some of that holy offering? Let me eat some of that too. I'm hungry, man. Where's your compassion? But if he was going to honor the word of God, at times he had to tell people no. He had to say to people, "I'm, I'm sorry, this is what God says. This is what God's word says. And can I say this by way of an application for us? A very valuable lesson in life, and in ministering to people, even as a Christian, is you've got to learn how to tell people no sometimes. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're supposed to say yes to everybody and everything. There is a time when it is God's will to say no. I'm sorry, but no, I can't do that. I can't be involved in that. I I can't allow you to participate in this. The Bible says we're not to be unequally yoked. No. And there is a time to be able to lovingly and honestly in honor of the Lord or maybe honoring God's word even say no. And, and, And here's the thing. Do people like when we say no? People don't like to be said no to. You say no to somebody, why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? Why?" And, and listen, I see this even in, in, in church and ministry. There's a time in ministry where you have to, on occasion, say no, maybe to someone who wants to minister in a certain capacity. And people don't like when you tell them no. That's unspiritual. That's unloving. That's ungodly. But there is a time when that's necessary if the Lord is leading and has given clear instruction that we have to evaluate. The, the priest had to evaluate who and what was involved. And there were times when he had to decline people from eating, even of those offerings of his own household. Again, because that was what God prescribed. Verse 14, he says, And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally so it was an accident he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it so there was a, a penalty in a sense attached to it they shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of israel which they offer to the lord or allow them to bear the guilt of the trespass when they eat their holy offerings for i the lord sanctify them let's look at just a few more verses and we'll conclude it says and the lord spoke to moses saying speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or of his free will offerings which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer notice, again, here's how God wants offerings of your own free will. Voluntarily. Again, we've seen this before. God doesn't want people giving grudgingly, under compulsion. Voluntarily, the Lord wants us to give. And it shall be a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, the goats. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer, it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. Whoever offers a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be, notice, perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Now, we're going to conclude here this evening, but, but I wanted to draw this to your attention because I think it's a great place to close. Notice, when the offerings were brought, again we see this re-emphasized, without blemish, without defect. It says they had to be perfect. Why? Because if they had blemishes and defects, they were not acceptable and they needed to be perfect in order to be accepted. Again, first of all, why? Because these things portray Christ. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He's sinless. Jesus was inherently uh, uh, born sinless. He never incurred any sin. He never committed any sin. So there was no blemishes or defects in Jesus' entire life. He was the sinless sacrifice and that's why he's the Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. And listen, that's why, that's why the wonderful thing is, is we are acceptable unto the Lord we're acceptable unto the Lord not because we come before the Lord perfect we're acceptable as worshipers because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when a sacrifice was brought to the temple they never examined the worshipper they examined the sacrifice it was evident the worshipper was already sinful that's why he's bringing a sacrifice so listen when you come before the Lord To be acceptable before the Lord is not to come before the Lord in your own perfections, in your own righteousness. That's the wrong idea. But to come before the Lord and realize, Lord, please don't examine me as the worshiper. But the sacrifice, Jesus, He's acceptable. I come in Jesus' name. I worship in spirit and truth. And thank you, Lord, that I'm accepted because of the acceptance of Jesus. What a great thing to ponder so that we can approach Him anytime and in any condition.